Chapter 3 of History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Verley. History of Astronomy by George Forbes. Ancient Greek Astronomy. We have our information about the earliest Greek astronomy from Herodotus, born 480 BC. He put the traditions into writing. Thales, 639 to 546 BC, is said to have predicted an eclipse, which caused much alarm, and ended the battle between the Medes and the Lydians. Airy fixed the date May 28, 585 BC, but other modern astronomers give different dates. Thales went to Egypt to study science, and learned from its priests the length of the year, which was kept a profound secret, and the signs of the zodiac and the positions of the solstices. He held that the sun, moon, and stars are not mere spots on the heavenly vault, but solids, that the moon derives her light from the sun, and that this fact explains her phases that an eclipse of the moon happens when the earth cuts off the sun's light from her, that an eclipse of the moon happens when the earth cuts off the sun's light from her. He supposed the earth to be flat and to float upon water. He determined the ratio of the sun's diameter to its orbit and apparently made out the diameter correctly as half a degree. He left nothing in writing. His successors, Anaximander, 610 to 547 BC, and Anaximenes, 550 to 475 BC, held absurd notions about the sun, moon, and stars, while Heraclitus, 540 to 500 BC, supposed that the stars were lighted each night like lamps, and the sun each morning. Parmenides supposed the earth to be a sphere. Pythagoras, 569 to 470 BC, visited Egypt to study science. He deduced his system, in which the earth revolves in an orbit from fantastic first principles, of which the following are examples. The circular motion is the most perfect motion. Fire is more worthy than earth. Ten is the perfect number. He wrote nothing but is supposed to have said that the earth, moon, five planets, and fixed stars all revolve around the sun, which itself revolves around an imaginary central fire called the Antikathon. Copernicus in the 16th century claimed Pythagoras as the founder of the system which he, Copernicus, revived. Anaxagoras, born 499 BC, studied astronomy in Egypt. He explained the return of the sun to the east each morning by its going under the flat earth in the night. He held that in a solar eclipse the moon hides the sun, and in a lunar eclipse the moon enters the earth's shadow, both excellent opinions. But he entertained absurd ideas of the vertical motion of the heavens whisking stones into the sky, there to be ignited by the fiery firmament to form stars. He was prosecuted for this unsettling opinion, and for maintaining that the moon is an inhabited earth. He was defended by Pericles, 432 BC. Solon dabbled, like many others, in reforms of the calendar, 
The common year of the Greeks originally had 360 days, 12 months of 30 days. Solon's year was 355 days. It is obvious that these erroneous years would, before long, remove the summer to January and the winter to July. To prevent this, it was customary at regular intervals to intercalate days or months. Meton, 432 BC, introduced a reform based on the 19-year cycle. This is not the same as the Egyptian and Chaldean eclipse cycle called Saros of 223 lunations, or a little over 18 years. The Metonic cycle is 235 lunations, or 19 years, after which period the sun and moon occupy the same position relative to the stars. It is still used for fixing the date of Easter, the number of the year in Milan's cycle being the golden number of our prayer books. Milan's system divided the 235 lunations into months of 30 days and omitted every 63rd day. Of the 19 years, 12 had 12 months and 7 had 13 months. Callipus, 330 BC, used a cycle four times as long, 940 lunations, but one day short of Milan's 76 years. This was more correct. Eudoxus, 406-350 BC, is said to have traveled with Plato in Egypt. He made astronomical observations in Asia Minor, Sicily, and Italy, and described the starry heavens divided into constellations. His name is connected with a planetary theory which, as generally stated, sounds most fanciful. He imagined the fixed stars to be on a vault of heaven, and the sun, moon, and planets to be upon similar vaults, or spheres, 26 revolving spheres in all, the motion of each planet being resolved into its components, and a separate sphere being assigned for each component motion. Callipus, 330 BC, increased the number to 33. It is now generally accepted that the real existence of these spheres was not suggested, but the idea was only a mathematical conception to facilitate the construction of tables for predicting the places of the heavenly bodies. Aristotle, 384-322 BC, summed up the state of astronomical knowledge in his time and held the earth to be fixed in the center of the world. Nicetas, Heraclides, and Ecphantes supposed the Earth to revolve on its axis, but to have no orbital motion. The short epitome so far given illustrates the extraordinary deductive methods adopted by the ancient Greeks, but they went much farther in the same direction. They seem to have been in great difficulty to explain how the Earth is supported, just as those who invented the myth of Atlas, or the Indians with the tortoise. Thales thought that the flat earth floated on water. Anaxagoras thought that, being flat, it would be buoyed up and supported on the air like a kite. Democritus thought it remained fixed, like the donkey between two bundles of hay, because it was equidistant from all parts of the containing sphere, and there was no reason why it should incline one way rather than another. Empedocles attributed its state of rest to centrifugal force by the rapid circular movement of the heavens, as water is stationary in a pail when whirled around by a string. Democritus further supposed that the inclination of the flat earth to the ecliptic was due to the greater weight of the southern parts 
owing to the exuberant vegetation. For further references to similar efforts of imagination, the reader is referred to Sir George Cornwall Lewis's Historical Survey of the Astronomy of the Ancients, London, 1862. His list of authorities is very complete, but some of his conclusions are doubtful. At page 113 of that work, he records the real opinions of Socrates as set forth by Xenophon. The reader will, perhaps, sympathize with Socrates in his views on contemporary astronomy. With regard to astronomy, he, Socrates, considered a knowledge of it desirable to the extent of determining the day of the year, or month, and the hour of the night. With regard to astronomy, he, Socrates, considered a knowledge of it desirable to the extent of determining the day of the year or month, and the hour of the night. But, as to learning the courses of the stars, to be occupied with the planets, and to inquire about their distances from the earth, and their orbits, and the causes of their motions, he strongly objected to such a waste of valuable time. He dwelt on the contradictions and conflicting opinions of the physical philosophers, and, in fine, he held that the speculators on the universe and on the laws of the heavenly bodies were no better than madmen. Plato, born 429 BC, the pupil of Socrates, the fellow student of Euclid, and a follower of Pythagoras, studied science in his travels in Egypt and elsewhere. He was held in so great reverence by all learned men that a problem which he set to the astronomers was the keynote to all astronomical investigation from this date till the time of Kepler in the 16th century. He proposed to astronomers the problem of representing the courses of the planets by circular and uniform motions. Systematic observation among the Greeks began with the rise of the Alexandrian school. Aristolus and Timocharis set up instruments and fixed the position of the zodiacal stars near to which all the planets in their orbits pass, thus facilitating the determination of planetary motions. Aristarchus, 320-250 BC, showed that the sun must be at least 19 times as far off as the moon which is far short of the mark. He also found the sun's diameter, correctly, to be half a degree. Eratosthenes, 276-196 BC, measured the inclination to the equator of the sun's apparent path in the heavens. That is, he measured the obliquity of the ecliptic, making it 23 degrees, 51 feet, confirming our knowledge of its continuous diminution during historical times. He measured an arc of meridian from Alexandria to Syene, Aswan, and found the difference of latitude by the length of a shadow at noon, summer solstice. He deduced the diameter of the earth, 250,000 stadia. Unfortunately, we do not know the length of the stadium he used. Hipparchus, 190-120 BC, may be regarded as the founder of observational astronomy. He measured the obliquity of the ecliptic and agreed with Eratosthenes. He altered the length of the tropical year from 365 days, 6 hours, to 365 days, 5 hours, 53 minutes, still 4 minutes too much. He measured the equation of time and the irregular motion of the sun and allowed for this in his calculations by supposing that the center about which the sun moves uniformly 
is situated a little distance from the fixed earth. He called this point the eccentric. The line from the earth to the eccentric was called the line of apses. A circle having this center was called the equant, and he supposed that a radius drawn to the sun from the eccentric passes over equal arcs on the equant in equal times. He then computed tables for predicting the place of the sun. He proceeded in the same way to compute lunar tables. Making use of Chaldean eclipses, he was able to get an accurate value of the moon's mean motion. Haley, in 1693, compared this value with his own measurements and so discovered the acceleration of the moon's mean motion. This was conclusively established, but could not be explained by the Newtonian theory for quite a long time. He determined the plane of the moon's orbit and its inclination to the ecliptic. The motion of the plane round the pole of the ecliptic once in 18 years complicated the problem. He located the moon's eccentric as he had done the sun's. He also discovered some of the minor irregularities of the moon's motion due, as Newton's theory proves, to the disturbing action of the sun's attraction. In the year 134 BC, Hipparchus observed a new star. This upset every notion about the permanence of the fixed stars. He then set to work to catalog all the principal stars so as to know if any others appeared or disappeared. Here, his experiences resembled those of several later astronomers, who, when in search of some special object, have been rewarded by a discovery in a totally different direction. On comparing his positions with those of Timocharis and Aristilus, he found no stars that appeared or disappeared in the interval of 150 years. But he found that all the stars seemed to have changed their places with reference to that point in the heavens, where the ecliptic is 90 degrees from the poles of the earth, that is, the equinox. He found that this could be explained by a motion of the equinox in the direction of the apparent diurnal motion of the stars. This discovery of precession of the equinoxes, which takes place at the rate of 52.1 inches every year, was necessary for the progress of accurate astronomical observations. It is due to a steady revolution of the Earth's pole round the pole of the ecliptic once in 26,000 years, in the opposite direction to the planetary revolutions. Hipparchus was also the inventor of trigonometry, both plane and spherical. He explained the method of using eclipses for determining the longitude. In connection with Hipparchus's great discovery, it may be mentioned that modern astronomers have often attempted to fix dates in history by the effects of precession of the equinoxes. At about the date when the Great Pyramid may have been built, Gamma Draconis was near to the pole and must have been used as the pole star. In the north face of the Great Pyramid is the entrance to an inclined passage, and six of the nine pyramids at Giza possess the same feature, all the passages being inclined at an angle between 26 degrees and 27 degrees to the horizon and in the plane of the meridian. It also appears that 4,000 years ago, that is, 
about 2100 BC. An observer at the lower end of the passage would be able to see Gamma Draconis, the then pole star, at its lower culmination. It has been suggested that the passage was made for this purpose. On other grounds, the date assigned to the Great Pyramid is 2123 BC. The Chaldeans gave names to constellations now invisible from Babylon, which would have been visible in 2000 BC, at which date it is claimed that these people were studying astronomy. In the Odyssey, Calypso directs Odysseus, in accordance with Phoenician rules, for navigating the Mediterranean, to keep the great bear ever on the left as he traversed the deep, when sailing from the pillars of Hercules, Gibraltar, to Corfu. Yet, such a course taken now would land the traveler in Africa. Odysseus is said in his voyage in springtime to have seen the Pleiades and Arcturus setting late, which seemed to early commentators a proof of Homer's inaccuracy. Likewise, Homer, both in the Odyssey and in the Iliad, asserts that the great bear never set in those latitudes. Now it has been found that the procession of the equinoxes explains all these puzzles, shows that in springtime on the Mediterranean the bear was just above the horizon, near the sea, but not touching it, between 750 BC and 1000 BC, and fixes the dates of the poems, thus confirming other evidence and establishing Homer's character for accuracy. The orientation of Egyptian temples and druidical stones is such that possibly they were so placed as to assist in the observation of the heliacal risings of certain stars. If the star was known, this would give an approximate date. Up to the present, the results of these investigations are far from being conclusive. Ptolemy, 130 AD, wrote the Suntaxis, or Almagest, which includes a cyclopedia of astronomy, containing a summary of knowledge at that date. We have no evidence beyond his own statement that he was a practical observer. He theorized on the planetary motions and held that the Earth is fixed in the center of the universe. He adopted the eccentric and equant of Hipparchus to explain the unequal motions of the sun and moon. He adopted the epicycles and deference which had been used by Apollonius and others to explain the retrograde motions of the planets. We who know that the earth revolves round the sun once in a year, can understand that the apparent motion of a planet is only its motion relative to the earth. If, then, we suppose the earth fixed, and the sun to revolve round it once a year, and the planets each in its own period, it is only necessary to impose upon each of these an additional annual motion to enable us to represent truly the apparent motions. This way of looking at the apparent motions shows why each planet, when nearest to the Earth, seems to move for a time in retrograde direction. The attempts of Ptolemy and others of his time to explain the retrograde motion in this way were only approximate. Let us suppose each planet to have a bar with one end centered at the Earth. If at the other end of the bar, one end of a shorter bar is pivoted, having the planet at its other end, then the planet is given an annual motion in the secondary cycle, the epicycle, whose center revolves round the Earth on the primary circle, the deferent. 
at a uniform rate round the eccentric. Ptolemy supposes the center of the epicycles of Mercury and Venus to be on a bar passing through the sun, and to be between the Earth and the sun. The centers of the epicycles of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn were supposed to be further away than the sun. Mercury and Venus were supposed to revolve in their epicycles in their own periodic times, and in the deferent, round the Earth in a year. The major planets were supposed to revolve in the deferent round the Earth in their own periodic times, and in their epicycles once in a year. It did not occur to Ptolemy to place the centers of the epicycles of Mercury and Venus at the Sun, and to extend the same system to the major planets. Something of this sort had been proposed by the Egyptians, we are told by Cicero and others, and was accepted by Tycho Brahe, and was as true a representation of the relative motions in the solar system as when we suppose the sun to be fixed and the earth to revolve. The cumbrous system advocated by Ptolemy answered its purpose, enabling him to predict astronomical events approximately. He improved the lunar theory considerably and discovered minor inequalities which could be allowed for by the addition of new epicycles. We may look upon these epicycles of Apollonius and the eccentric of Hipparchus as the response of these astronomers to the demand of Plato for uniform circular motions. Their use became more and more confirmed until the 17th century, when the accurate observations of Tycho Brahe enabled Kepler to abolish these purely geometrical makeshifts and to substitute a system in which the sun became physically its controller. End of chapter 3. Recording by Ian Verley.